Good morning, church. Welcome to all of you. A special welcome to our visitors. And I want to acknowledge our college students that have come back. It's so good to have you back with us. I want to talk to you this morning uh, about a, the great handoff. Several years ago, when uh, my aunt was dying, we, we flew to uh, Connecticut to spend her last uh, hours together. I sat in the, in the hospital room and I, I prayed over her, talked with her, and I, kept, I just kept stroking her hand. And as I, I did that, something uh, just really connected with me. And now, now hold your hand out like this. Uh, at the time, that hand was only about 45, 45 years old. Now imagine the 90-something-year-old hand on top of that and think of the difference between the two. And I'm thinking about this handoff. And, and, and at that moment, 24 hours later, Jesus' hand was holding hers. You talk about an amazing handoff. I took a picture of that, of that hand. Fast forward several years later, you, some of you remember Davine Pugh? Sweet Davine. Same thing happened. I'm at her bedside the last day of her life. Same thing. Now my hand's a little older, but hers, frail, thin skin, veins and bones. Handoff. Handoff. Fast forward to a few months ago, weeks ago, and now the hand I'm holding is three decades younger than mine. And moments later, she's holding Jesus' hand. I'm telling you those last moments, the words of that person really, really resonate. And I've been thinking about the, the big handoff when Christ left this earth. Think of what was the last thing he said to us? Make disciples. And so this morning, I want to challenge us to consider our call as a church to this ministry called discipleship because the King of Kings' last words to us raised the bar for us to consider our purpose in life, namely the purpose of making disciples. So this has been, this has been incubating. So today's sermon, I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to do. This is not going to be an expositional message. That's what I'm not going to do. So just understand that's not my goal. It's a topical message on discipleship. Now you can, uh, you can decide if I know what I'm going to talk about when, I, when I'm done. But I want to talk about discipleship. And Jesus' call to us, Bethany Community Church, to be involved in this ministry called discipleship. I went over my last notes from Daniel's last three sermons challenging us elders and, and pastors and deacons about leading this church. And you know, the, the word and theme of discipleship was thread through that, those last three messages way more than I ever thought. Listen to what he's, these are some notes from, his, from my notes of his sermon. The local church is called to be shepherded by God's people in community as we share our lives together Making and Strengthening Disciples. 
Discipleship, Daniel says, is a multiplication ministry. A disciple must be a discipler. When's the last time you thought of yourself as a disciple maker? It's not a common way we think. He called us to serve with tears, us leaders. Serve with tears. Paul said that. I serve night and day with tears. Tears over what? Tears over other people's suffering. Discipleship calls us to serve with tears over other people's struggle with sin. Discipleship calls us to serve other people with, especially with tears over people who are rejecting Christ and the gospel. So as we consider this morning our call to discipleship, I'm going to ask, ask uh, what is discipleship? I want to talk a, much about how I believe we pursue discipleship. And last, I want to end with the hope that God gives us as we pursue this particular ministry called discipleship in the church. What is it? How? And why there's hope in this? It's where we're headed. So I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 25. I'm going to uh, spend just a couple of verses to read his last words before Christ left the earth. And then I want you to turn to Luke chapter 6. So you might find both of those passages as you stand for the reading of God's word. Please stand with me uh, as, you, as we open God's word in honor of God's word. And again, what we're, what we're doing here is we're reading Jesus' last words, the handoff, the great commandment, make disciples. Jesus says this as he gathers his disciples before he ascends into heaven. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So our command, the handoff command from Christ is to make disciples. Luke 6, we'll turn there now to Luke 6. Now Jesus is halfway through his ministry and he has gathered a tremendous crowd of people, a mixed crowd, lots of detractors, Pharisees, grumblers, complainers, and his apostles and his disciples. Now look at verse 20 in chapter 6. Look at verse 20 and notice who he directs his words to. He turns his gaze towards his disciples. So we know that the message that we're going to read here is for us, his disciples, his followers. Verse 39, I want to pick it up there. Luke chapter 6. Jesus told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Answer, no. Will they not both fall into a pit? Answer, yes. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. You may be seated. Father, we have come here this morning to consider our call to discipleship, to take seriously your last handoff words to the church, 
we want to understand what it's like to become like our teacher. And we pray you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. And we pray this for Christ's sake and through his name. Amen. That last command is to make disciples. And what is the point of making disciples? To teach them to observe. To observe what? Everything I have commanded. I'm telling you, as I've, I've been meditating on this passage for a good while, and I have been challenged and convicted, because i, I got to tell you, I, I often am not thinking about all of what the gospel calls me to do as a follower of Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us of this. Now, those of you who know who he is, uh, gave his life, very young age, in his 30s, for the sake of the gospel. Here's what he says about discipleship. Following Christ is an obligation laid on all Christians without distinction. You see, this call to discipleship is not just for teachers and leaders and pastors and elders. It's for you. If, if you, like Brock, have come to Christ by faith and repentance. So before we actually get into the, to the meat of the conversation, I, I want to... I want to, to have us think about, uh, turn to the next slide, please. I want to talk about the gospel because everything I say today, I want to, f I want to found on, on this idea is it's by grace through faith, everything we can hope for. The only thing we can hope for is the grace of God applied to us by faith. The Bible says, without faith it is impossible to please God. So by grace through faith, we come to Christ in faith and repentance. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Uh, Brock explained it to us well. We need to understand how you come to faith in Christ before we can talk about discipleship. So here's the gospel. A holy God created the universe with a spoken word in a matter of six days, created man and woman on the sixth day, they chose to rebel and not listen to him, fell into sin, and in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. And we can come to him and trust his perfect life and his sinless death to pay our sin and to give us his righteousness. God, man, sin, Christ, grace calls us to respond in repentance, which brings results. The point here is it's, it's impossible for us to think about discipleship without understanding the price of the gospel and understanding that nothing can be done without grace and faith. Colossians 2 says this. Listen to Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him how do you receive christ by grace through faith so point number one in your outline obeying god begins becoming a disciple begins by grace through faith we embrace our identity now i've, I've chosen this idea of embracing our identity for a, a specific reason besides the fact i think it's very 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 biblical I have, in 23 years of 
counseling ministry, seeing this issue over and over and over again, where we forget who Christ has made us by faith, placing us in him. And here's what happens when we forget. So it reminds, it's like the beggar. The, here's a true story. Beggar walking the subways of New York City. One day, he'd been doing this for years. One day, he, he taps on this guy's shoulder, and the guy turns around, and the beggar says, can, I, can you spare a dime? He's staring face to face in the eyes of his dad. He hasn't seen his dad for 18 years. He's shocked. He says, Dad, do you, do you remember me? And Dad says to the beggar, Are you kidding me? Do I remember you? I've been looking for you for 18 years. I want to give you everything I have. See, we, we live our lives oftentimes as beggars, forgetting that we're children of the King of Kings who has given us the riches of his kingdom. And here's what it plays out like. If we haven't embraced our identity, the fear of man takes over. We're striving to be somebody for acceptance, for achievement, for accolades, for safety, for security. Ridicule the voices of the past, the amassed evidence of your history. Start to tell you who you are or who you're not. Instead of the voice of the God in heaven who chose you and said, I love you, the Christ who died for you, so you could be in him, we forget. So I want you to think about this first, this first element of this idea of embracing your identity is to the point that you actually sit in the seat. You accept the gift that he gives you of being adopted, loved, made righteous, promised never to leave, never forsake. He's an in us, with us, for us kind of God. Embrace your identity. That's critical. Because everything we're going to talk about from this point comes from sitting here and trusting everything God has done to make you who you are. Identify. We talk about this in Sunday school. There's a difference between an objective truth and a subjective understanding. That's objective. So point, next point in your outline, a disciple then. Let's talk about what the Bible actually says about what it means to be a disciple. The word translated disciple, one, it means to be a follower. A disciple is a follower. I remember as a kid, I used to go to the farm and uh, I'm probably eight years old, and this, this old farmer, gentle man named Ori, was really, really special to me. I mean, I, and I still remember this. This is over 60 years ago. I remember listening to the, the blue jean bib overalls rustle between his legs, walking through tall grass, watching his boots, and I was right behind him, follow, follow. Follow, follow. The idea of following somebody in this culture means that you, you choose a leader who's not blind, namely Christ, who is the light, and you're going to latch on to him 
So his life becomes your life, and your steps are right in his steps, you see, following him. The idea, well, Jesus lays it out in John 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. For if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now think about this. If I'm embracing who he says I am, I am sitting in a place where the King of Kings, the God of the universe, says he will honor me. Are you kidding me? That's hard for me to grasp because I know me. But praise God, he knows me better and he chooses to honor me, you. Why? Because you're in Christ. Following Christ, is a, this is another definition from a theologian. It is a call to decisive and intimate walking with your teacher. Decisive and intimate. So, my question to you is, if you say you're a Christian, have you accepted the identity of a disciple? How much of your life is set on following, exchanging your life for his life, that your next step is meant to be in the steps of the king? Second point in your outline is a call to be a learner. The word disciple in the New Testament has the idea of being a learner. Now we're going deeper yet. See, I am identified with Christ. I want to follow him, but now to the point I want to learn. I want to learn who he is. Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, come, come, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a promise of following and learning. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your soul. Two promises of rest for the weary soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The book Gentle and Lowly translates it, my burden is kind. We're following a kind king, a gracious king. A gentle king. I'm gentle. You can follow me. You can trust me. A learner binds himself to Jesus, listen, by surrendering one's own judgment in order to direct one's life to know and obey God's word. We're not only walking behind him to follow him just to get, gain his lifestyle. Now we want to look at, look at, look at this. I want to exchange my mind for his mind. That's what it means to be a learner. I think thoughts after God, like thoughts about thinking thoughts after God. You've heard me say, think about your thinking. It gets right to the heart of who you are. Now, you say, I'm not a learner. It's hard for me to learn things. Well, Hebrews chapter 5 is a, an amazing passage for you to consider. Hebrews 5, verse 8. Though he was a son, 
yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. That has, that has fascinated me. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 5 both talk about Christ going through suffering for the sake of learning? Are you kidding me? What does that mean? One commentator says it this way. In the context, Jesus learned obedience by recognizing God's will and in his suffering gave an affirmation to God's will in his acceptance of the suffering. That, now that makes sense to me. So another way to say it, Zach and I were talking about this earlier today, another way to say this kind of thing is I have said it this way. We learn obedience, which produces meek surrender to his pressure on us, where I become okay with what's not okay, because I know that God is okay with what's not okay. In other words, I'm not going to fuss with him the way he runs his kingdom. I let God be God. Jesus, remember uh, John the Baptist? Remember John the Baptist? In prison? Imagine this. Your cousin is out there raising dead people, healing lepers, cleansing uh, bl uh, people with uh, blood disorders, calming seas. He's not even going to visit me. He doesn't even bother to visit me. Send, I'll send, my, send my pals, but go ask this guy, are you really Christ or do we look for somebody else? Because you're not running your kingdom the way I think you should. They came to Jesus and Jesus, you know what Jesus said? Go tell John to don't fuss with me about the way I run my kingdom. He didn't give him an answer. So meekness is the product of being a learner. Next thing in your outline, not only are we called to follow and learn of Christ, we are to be a lover. A disciple is a lover. This is a, the litmus test if you are really following and learning who God is. John 13, Jesus, what is Jesus doing in John 13? He took his clothes off, put a towel around his waist, got on his knees, and did what slaves do, washed his disciples' feet. Why? Because they were too proud to do it themselves. And as he's washing feet, he says, I got something else for you, a new commandment, that you love one another like I am loving you right now. Discipleship calls us to follow, to learn, and to love. Daniel said this in his recent sermon, the local church is made up of shepherds who share lives in community, who make and strengthen disciples. And Jesus said the whole world should know that we are his kids because of the way we love each other. But Mahatma Gandhi said this, I like their Christ, but I don't like their Christian. Alistair Begg says it this way, many people have turned their back backs on the story of Christianity, not because they've examined it and found it untrue, but because they have met Christians and found it unbelievably trivial. 
If you are a Christian, not a fake one, not a fickle one, but a faithful one, you are called to be a disciple, a learner, a follower, a lover, a maker of other disciples. How much? How much of your energy, time, and resources is moving you in that direction? It starts with embracing your identity as a child of the king. Next point, your outline. By grace, through faith, I want to encourage you to stay in your heart's hope and in your understanding of what God has done to change your identity, rest here, but then get up and engage this ministry we call discipleship. Back to verse 40 in chapter 6, a disciple, Jesus says, is not above his teacher. Now he's just said, don't follow blind guides because you'll end up in a ditch. What's he saying? He's saying, follow me because I know who I am and where I'm going. And you can follow me when you know who you are and where you're going. But you need to be fully trained. Now, the idea of being fully trained, there's hope here. Here's, we're going to end with this, but there's, there's hope for you. I don't care where you are right now. There are people in this room and people watching perhaps who are so broken, so, so hurting, so lost, you don't know where to go next. Well, praise God, this is the place to be because we are, we are full. This is a church full of broken people who got nothing except grace in Christ. And we can sit on the same bench and we can point each other to the King of Kings who can help us follow him and who promises us restoration. You see, Galatians 6, 1 and 2, what does it say? If a brother or sister is overtaken in a fault, if they are caught from behind and dragged down by their, their struggle with sin or temptation, you who are spiritual can restore him in a spirit of meekness, lest you also be tempted. The word restoration in Galatians 6 is the same word here for fully trained has the idea of a broken fishing net being repaired or a broken bone being set for full healing there's hope here in the end of the training but we have to engage in the training and my challenge to you church is this when life gets hard we are first world christians and tend to want to quit we were in Africa several years ago, and our brothers and sisters over there in West Africa go to funerals every weekend. That is a normal part of their world. And we fuss, I fuss, when my Bluetooth coffee cup is out of battery. First world. Here's, the, here's my challenge to us as a church is engage the training. This is hard. Paul says, I beat my body and bring it into subjection. Paul says, I most, this is 2 Corinthians 12, I most gladly will spend and be spent for your sake. 
Now, this is a guy I want to follow. He's, a guy, he's saying, I'm going to exhaust, I'm going to work myself to the point of exhaustion for the sake of the people of God's church. Why? Because Christ died for them. I'm going to serve them. Full training means hard work. It also means this. This is a quote I read somewhere. It's not mine, but I think this is really, really important. This is kind of tying this embracing to the engaging. Let yourself, here's the call of a disciple, let yourself be led to a spiritual condition in which nothing is lacking. That's the point of training. Well, where's the hope in that? Well, by grace through faith, we're going to engage this training. Titus says this, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness. The gr- you have grace to teach, grace to train. This is not something you do or I do on our own. What we start here, we stay here in, in our identity, but then we start to act like who we become. John MacArthur says this, a pro- a progressive sanctification is literally the, the process or the struggle of becoming who you've already been. Living out your identity is another way to say this. Timothy says, train yourself, or the word there is gumnazo, gymnasium is the word, the word we get. Train yourself to godliness. And Daniel read this a, a couple weeks ago. Here's our hope for training. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Our identity is critical, but it calls us to engage the battle of becoming a disciple becoming more like Christ. You see, discipleship is living and speaking like Christ to help others become more like Christ. That's the definition that I skipped over. Next point in your outline. Engaging in this training starts with self-denial. We need to deny self. Deny ourself. Jesus said this in Luke 9. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, Anyone who's going to follow me, learn of me, learn how to love, meekly surrender, and engage the training, he must deny himself. Here's the rub for you and me. If you're honest, if you're like I am, I fight this battle. Or I face the battle. I don't always fight it. I face the battle every day. Deny myself. Take up your cross and follow me. When we were in Israel... We walked on the stones that Jesus' blood stained. I remember uh, standing in the upper room just being overwhelmed with the reality that I was in a place where Jesus was chastised and scourged. We walked where he dragged his cross. We were on that same street. Boy, did it bring it home. We sat on the front steps of the temple, and Daniel read the very words Jesus preached from those very steps. And Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you need to pick up a cross. You need to demonstrate that you're willing to go to the cross to die, to follow me. That's a big deal. To deny means to disown who you are. All this preaching that the Christian church has done since our kids were born 
about self-esteem smacks in the face of what Jesus is saying in Luke 9. You're going to follow me? Disown who you are. Sit here. Sit here where I put you. Then you can follow me. Why would I do that? 2 Corinthians 5. Paul said this. Now remember, 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this letter to demonstrate the, the position he held in the church as an apostle. And he delineates all the ways that he suffered. Shipwreck, beaten how many times, left for, left for dead, night and a day in the deep. And he says this. In the middle of that conversation, he says, I make it my aim to please God. I don't care if I'm dead or alive. I'm here to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Now, verse 14, he says this. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Listen, if I'm abiding in this position, if I'm following, learning, and embracing his love, his love compels me to engage in this and die to self. What's that mean to compel it means to carry me along. Like, I can't, I can't not do this. Uh, when I was, uh, I was uh, eighth grade, we went on a canoe trip uh, and uh, had a great time. It was in a spot of uh, whitewater excitement, you know, eighth grade. So how old are you in eighth grade? 13? Okay, so now, now fast forward till I'm 21, I go back to this place. Same place, memories, think I know what I'm doing, but I have no idea that the white water in the eighth grade level was like this, and the level today was flood stage. I, didn't, I wasn't paying attention. So I jump in this rapid thinking I could swim and get out of it. I'm telling you, I almost drowned. I was a brand new believer, and I, I had tennis shoes on but no life jacket. And I jumped into raging water, and it swept me along. That's what this means. The love of Christ sweeps me. I can't not go in the direction his love is pointing me. I remember thinking, this is a silly way to die. I knew I was dying. I was, I was going to heaven. It didn't bother me, but I thought, I'm dead and I remember giving up and just, I thought, I'm going to suck in whatever it takes to kill me. And at that moment, I popped out. I don't know how many yards downstream. And the rapids not only took me down, but popped me out and, and I got out of it. But every time I think about this passage, I think that experience, the love of Christ controls me. Why? Why? Because he died for all so we would no longer live for ourselves, but live for him. So denying self ought to be an easy thing to do if we are thinking about why and how I got here, you see. The love of Christ controls us. Back to Bonhoeffer. He says this person will renounce every right of his own and live for the sake of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say that followers of Jesus not only renounce themselves, 
they renounce their self-righteousness. And I would argue that self-righteousness impedes an awful lot of Christian growth. So meekness advances. Meek love, surrendered love, obedient love, denying self advances the discipleship program, but selfishness and stubbornness will prevent it. So if we're going to engage the battle, we need to deny self in a big way. Next point, your outline. This is big. This is huge. God calls us to a life of relationship as disciples in his kingdom. The word is koinonia. We talked about it in the first hour this, uh, this morning. But the word fellowship, relationship, partnership is all over the scriptures. And it comes from this word koinonia, which means to live in common with others. We are to share partnership, fellowship, enterprise. We're called to connect arms, lock arms, and work with each other. Well, what do we share? Number one, next point. Number one, we are sharing Christ, our Savior. The church is to be a community that knows who Christ is. That's where the learning comes from, the following. We know who he is, and we teach the truth about him. So here's your opportunity. I don't care who you are, where you are in your walk with Christ. If you are a believer, you are called to share Jesus with other believers. How do you do that? Well, I just told you some verses men have shared with me over the years. I guess I said this the first hour. Neil Gerber and I were sitting in a church service probably 30-some years ago. He turned to me and read a passage of Scripture and challenged me to think about what it meant. I've never forgotten that. He doesn't remember it, but I have. I have and thought about it a lot. There was a time when Kevin Souter came to my office. He would at the time have been about 27 or 8 years old. He leaned, he leaned against the doorpost of my office and he had tears in his eyes. Don't tell him I'd tell you this. Now, now how old am I? I'm 18, 20 years ahead of him. He leans against the doorpost and he said, are you ready for some iron sharpening? Right out of Proverbs. Well, what does that mean? What do, you, what do you think when somebody says they want to talk to you about iron sharpening? My first thought was, nope. <laughs> I'm not ready for this. But you know Kevin. And I saw his heart. And I got really soft. And I, I got really prepared. And he challenged me and rebuked me in some way. I don't remember what I did. All I remember, he was kind. He shared Christ with me that day by presenting my behavior against the scriptures. You can share Christ by just throwing out a passage of scripture by a text and give people encouragement. But you can't and won't share Christ unless you have sat here, followed, and learned, and sat in his love. Next thing in your outline, we share Christ, our Savior. We also share ourself. I already quoted this passage, but 
Paul's life has been a call to my life. He says, I will most gladly exhaust myself for your sake. Philippians 2 calls us to selfless service to the body of Christ. This is Philippians 2, 1 through 4. If you don't know the passage, I would encourage you, this is your homework. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. This is what followers and disciples of Jesus do and why we do it. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Make his mind be your mind. Exchange your ideas for his ideas. Let go of what you think is important. By the way, the whole message of Luke 6, the Sermon on the Plain, is standing on our head the typical ideas of human beings. Jesus came for a radical, radical shift in the way we think. And Paul says in Philippians 2, let his mind be your mind. The same mind, the same love, being in full accord, in one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourself. And don't only look in your own interests. Look in the interests of others. Sharing, koinonia means to share the Savior, to share ourself, and lastly, share your stuff. Share your stuff. What you have ought to be available for others. Share what you have. Enough said on that. We have a, we have a great ministry where we can share things that we they have and we own. But I, you know, my, my parents were like this. Uh, I, I watched them. I watched them generously give what they had. They didn't have much, but what they had was open to anybody else. And I found a, a tremendous amount of joy watching them bless other people. But you know what, what else it did as a kid, now that I think about it? It gave me a, excuse me, a real sense of security. Because I knew my, my, my church family was, was interconnected. They loved my parents. My parents loved them. And I had a lot of white-haired people that cared about me when I was a kid. So, discipleship is living and speaking like Christ to help other people become like Christ. We live and speak like Christ out of embracing our identity and we help other people become more like Christ as we engage in the training process, denying ourselves and sharing our Savior, ourself, and our stuff. Lastly, by grace through faith, we can expect Christ-likeness. We can expect results. God promises results in me and in others. There's results going to happen. The more you abide in Christ, the more you ingest the love of Christ through reading his word, through prayer, through meditation, through hanging out with other people, iron sharpening, the more he changes you. And the more he, you'll see change in other people you disciple. There's hope in this ministry. Now, it doesn't take that much. Sometimes just think about the people that have, have infected your life with the love of Christ. 
Sometimes it's not a lot. The other day, Janelle was uh, shopping and met a, a, a woman that used to babysit our kids. So this, this history would go back, what, 35 years? Uh, she told Janelle how much our life made an impact on a 14-year-old girl. Who knew? It doesn't take, necessarily doesn't take much. When I was a new believer, I remember this outdoor party I went to with a bunch of college-age kids, all, all believers. But my friend Steve had just, had just been uh, transformed. by the, he, he came out of a, a dark drug culture, was transformed, and fired up. And I wasn't even in the, in the conversation, but I was overhearing him talk to somebody else. And this somebody else asked Steve, how in the world do you know so much Bible already? Why are you so excited and fired up about the gospel? And this, this made a, a, a lifelong impact on me. You know what he said? I have prayed for a love of the scriptures. And I, I looked at him and I thought, I, I want to be like him. And I started praying, God, give me a love for your word. That's what I mean by just sharing Christ and sharing yourself. Sometimes it doesn't take much. Living and speaking like Christ can influence other people. You might think you're not doing much, but little things matter my dad was in the hospital in the intensive care, heart problems. I thought this was a last word handoff. I thought I was never going to see him again. We're talking. And I was sharing as a, I'm early 30s, probably 32, three years old. Afraid of losing my dad. Discouraged. I got nothing. Dad, I got nothing. I don't know where I'm going with life. Here's what he told me. I'll never forget this. He's laying pipes in his nose, you know, machines everywhere. I want to tell you a story. Pastor was on his way to, to church one Sunday morning, Bible under his arm, walks by a gardener. And he says to the gardener, that's a mighty fine garden you and the Lord have. You know what the guy said? He stopped and leaned on his hoe. He says, yeah, you should have seen this garden when God had it all by himself. Now, my dad never handed out compliments. That gave me encouragement that God could use me in some way. That word of encouragement, that little story gave me hope that I could engage in the process of growing and changing to become more like Christ, to help other people in their battle. There's hope for you to change. Embrace your identity. Engage the battle. Deny yourself. And share yourself and your Savior and your stuff. And you have hope. God's going to bless it. He's going to bless us as a church family. Paul says this, and I close. We all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed from one degree to another. There's transformation happening in this room. Paul says this about us. I thank my God in every remembrance of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making thanks. Because your partnership in the gospel, there's koinonia from the first day until now. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will complete it. God bless you to that end. Lord, we pray your blessing on your words today. And ask in your kind grace that we could stand in our identity that has been declared by heaven itself. That by your grace we would be fully trained and be like Jesus. And through his name we pray. Amen.